Ah, hello there. Servus. My name is Haishan Wade, and you're listening to This Week in Geopolitics, where we take a look at the events of yesterday and detail how they paint the geopolitical realities of today. And what do I got for you today? Well, today we're going to be talking about the Biden's scandal, continued with a very interesting new detail. We have a glimpse of the multipolar world order in action given to us by the nation of Turkey. And then we have calls finally emerging for a direct NATO intervention into the war in Ukraine. All that and more coming up. Let's get into the rapid fire news for today's episode. We have the riots in France engulfing the nation in flames and producing uh, another fountain of memes. But the riots in France have continued on into their third week. Uh, Macron, in response to the chaos overtaking his nation, has blamed the real culprit of the problem, video games and social media. So with the obvious root causes of this problem identified, we can expect that the riots will be over shortly, is what someone probably said who believed him. Um, But (laughs) it's more likely that the riots are going to continue for weeks now. Uh, We'll see if they end in, say, a couple months, and then this just becomes sort of a a footnote, or if they evolve into something greater. This is really just a a, a wait-and-see type of thing. It's judgments right now would be a bit premature. Uh, But I will say, again, like I said last episode, um, no one is comparing this to to the Wagner coup. No no one's saying that the French government's about to be overthrown, even though there's there's actual nationwide riots, whereas with the Wagner coup, or or so we were told it was a coup, but the, the mutiny under Prigozhin, that was resolved in... 48 hours or less. And it wasn't even directed at the Russian government. It was directed at Shoigu, the Minister of Defense. So, we it, that's a very interesting uh, parallel that I've noticed over the past week, few weeks. And also notice how quickly that story faded away. Because, like, I, I swear I was just bombarded over the course of the first 24 hours of the Prigozhin mutiny, the Wagner mutiny. Um, it, and I, I even have the, my newsletter from Peter Zion. Maybe I'll, I'll put it up on my Twitter. <laughs> the what, what I was being bombarded with, it's, oh, there's a coup in Russia. Oh, it's civil war. It's uh, the, the, the military in Russia is turning against Putin. Vast swaths of the country are, are in fa- uh, uh, It's over. And Prigozhin's going to Belarus. And I'm like, okay. So this entire time, while I was clearing my mind of this, of uh, the world, you know, just take, taking a good one day to just not be so he- deep and heavy into my, uh, my lovely little hobby here, the one day that I take off, because the other days I'm, I'm just passively listening to uh, my, love, my good information sources, like the Duran, like Jimmy Dora, like Jackson Hinkle. But the one day that I decide, you know what, it's recreation only, baby. Uh, and I tuned out for a day. It, it goes from mutiny to civil to coup to civil war to, oh, it's over. 
and I'm like, okay, but now here we have these riots in France, which are very ethnically based. I don't think, I don't think we would be dealing uh, in the realm of an uprising were it not for the ethnic dimension of this. Some would say that that's racist. Others would say um, you've imported a lot of people who don't consider themselves to be French and who honestly can't be French. They, they, they really can't. They're not French. They are what they are. They can be French in their nationality, in their citizenship, but let's not forget that most of the nationalities in Europe are ethnically based. The Germans are a nationality. You can technically be German, but you'll never be German. You can technically be English, but you'll never be English. And the same goes for France. So when the majority of the rioters are, or at the very least, the spearhead of them, uh, again, I can't necessarily speak on behalf of the entire thing because, well, I'm over here in America. <laughs> but when you have this blatant uh, ethnic uprising in the name of the, the kid who was shot, the Algerian boy who was shot, and you see the nature of the riots and it's very Black Lives Matter-esque, it's very much an ethnic uprising in France. Among largely, largely among, from what we can deduce looking at it from the outside in, largely from among the migrant populations of France. And it's in the police unions in France believe this. A lot of the citizens in France believe this. The, the migrants in France believe this. Uh, an interesting detail about uh, the riots themselves is that while the mother of the boy who was shot, she was out there calling for violence, the grandmother of the boy was calling for peace. So very interesting dynamic there in the family. Granted, the influence that they those two have over the events as they transpire now is very minimal, as is evident by the fact that the, the riots continue. Uh, it's sort of taken on a life of its own. But no one's saying that France is in Civil War 2.0, even though they might actually be closer to one. Again, we'll just have to wait and see. So we'll keep our eyes on France. We'll keep our eyes on France and on the French leadership, because with leadership like Macron, oh boy, they're in for a rough ride. Uh, and Macron has also threatened to enact stricter censorship of social media in France. Again, he blames video games on social media, so he's going to crack down on that. Perhaps it'll cut off the ability for the rioters to communicate via social media. Will they just move to other apps and other programs? Maybe. Who knows? But will this be effective? We also don't know. We'll just have to wait and see. But that's what's going on in France right now. We have next door neighbor, uh, the Netherlands. The Dutch government has collapsed. Uh, not the, the as in they're in a they fractured and they broke up Soviet Union style, but the, the Dutch government, the you know the, the ruling coalition has fallen apart. So now they're in the process of putting together a new one, and the, the BBB, that farmers' party that took control of the Dutch Senate in the elections that they held earlier this year, who were opposed to the this radical plan. And again, this goes back to the anti-humanist agenda that we keep talking about whenever we talk about climate change and all the policies surrounding climate change. They wanted to cull the government wanted to force the farmers in, in the netherlands to cull their herds of cattle because the cattle it's literally the meme where the cow farts uh was producing too much carbon 
It, it, it was producing too much methane. The, woof. <laughs> the animals, their excrement and their, their toots were, would produce too much methane. And that was bad for climate change. So the government, the old government, the one that just collapsed, wanted the farmers to kill off their herds to fight climate change. And, and, and then the farmers said no, formed their own political party, and then they won in the Dutch Senate. So they killed that. They, they shut that shit down immediately. Oh, and they, they didn't riot. They didn't riot. Not too much anyway. But they organized really large protests. They were essentially taking their tractors out onto the streets and the highways and then parking them in very inconvenient places, essentially shutting down the, gov- the, the government and the country and shutting down movement in the country. A lot of the fishermen went along with them and sort of protested and blockaded harbors in solidarity. So they, they got active in response to this and good on them because what type of, what type of, what type of madman says we're going to, we're going to reduce food production. What sane leader would say something like that? We're going to, we're going to reduce food production. Okay. We're going to reduce food production. We don't need that. You don't need food. Okay. Eat your grasshoppers, eat your, your plant-based burgers, your beyond meat, you know, just shut up and kill the cows. And the farmer said, no. And again, what does that have to do with climate change? What, why, why is the only solution for reducing climate change or to, to keep the temperatures from rising by half a degree, uh, why is it that the only solutions are to reduce the human standard of living? To reduce the human condition? Why, why are those the only solutions? Why can't we have better technology? Why can't we have fusion power? Why can't we have nuclear I could go on that rant again. Uh, I won't for now. But yeah, the with the collapse of the Dutch government, the, this farmer's party is likely going to either take full control of the Dutch parliament or they're going to be the leaders of whoever the ruling coalition is. Um, we'll see what happens there. We have the Uzbek president, Shavkat Mirziyoyev. Shavkat Mirziyoyev. There we go. He's been elected uh, re-elected for his third term. So that's a win for the multipolar world and a win for uh, the Ruskies, the Ruskies who have solidified their control over uh, the entire former Soviet space, save for Ukraine and the Baltics. And Ukraine is already uh, a work in progress. Now we'll see what happens to the Baltics. We have the U.S. Office of the Director of National Intelligence. Um, why it's the Office of the Director of National Intelligence and not the Director of National Intelligence saying this um, is a conversation for a different day. But the Office of the Director of National Intelligence admits that Iran is, in fact, not developing nuclear weapons. Didn't we almost go to war over this multiple times? Oh, they're producing nuclear weapons. They're 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 five years away. They're they're ten months away from having a nuclear device. Isn't that what, we, what we've been told for years on end? And now this guy is coming out and saying, "Oh yeah, by the way, Ed, they're they're not developing nuclear weapons, but they're they're improving the capacity to to have 
to have nuclear they're improving the capacity but but they're not pursuing nuclear weapons okay um so what you're saying is that they are using nuclear power strictly for energy purposes energy production purposes and they are in fact not a threat to anybody in that regard so then why are we over there what what's the point of the jcpoa <laughs> if the iranians don't need it if the Iranians don't need to be told, hey, don't build a nuke, and they use their nuclear power strictly for the production of energy, well, then what's the point of us hyping them up as this enemy of the United States? All the, these years, these years of warmongering and fearmongering and saber rattling to get us into a war with this country over nothing because the the nuclear thing was the the big seller all right we have to be able to stop iran we you don't want the iranians to have a nuke that's why we need the gc that's why we need the the iran nuclear deal that's why we need it we we need to get back into the, the jcpoa talks remember when biden first uh storm uh, i mean when he first um got elected yeah mm -hmm. when he first got elected and there was a whole lot of talk about returning to the JCPOA, returning to the JCPOA. We need the Iran nuclear deal. And here the Iranians are doing what the deal was supposed to make them do, except they're doing it without the deal. So that's dead. The JCPOA is dead permanently, which means that Donald Trump was uh, very accurate in his assessment that it was unneeded. The deal was not needed. So what now? Are we going to continue saber rattling with Iran to try to get into a war with them? What happens now? Because the Iranians are clearly a a civilized country, civilized enough to not have nuclear weapons, but they can build them if they want them. They can build them if they want them, but they're using it for nuclear power. Okay, so then who's the real threat in the region? Who's the real danger to the stability of the region if it's not Iran? Oh, it's Israel and United States. We're the only nuclear armed powers in this region, except for Pakistan. But Pakistan is uh, conveniently un as uninvolved as they come, which is strange because I'm always told that we have to be involved. Um, but Pakistan, next door neighbor, is uh, they, they, they don't want to touch the region with a 10 foot pole or India, for that matter. China is more involved in the Middle East than India or Pakistan, and both of them are nuclear armed powers. So, if Iran is not the danger to the region, then all that leaves is Israel. And now, all of a sudden, with the Iranians now, well, they weren't to begin with, but now that it's being admitted by the U.S. government that they were not pursuing nuclear weapons this entire time, what is the purpose of us defending israel because again one of the the other primary purposes of us being there was we have to defend israel from its enemies i mean we have to defend israel from america's enemies because they're our ally they they're there to help us we're, we're not there to serve them they're they're our allies you know we we're in this together but if iran's not a threat arabia is not a threat Turkey is uh, nominally a NATO ally, 
and the Syrian civil war is over and the, the civil war in Yemen is about to be over. The civil war in Ethiopia is over. Uh, there's a civil war in Sudan, but shoot. If all, if all this is over, then what's, what's the point? And while this is a great thing, I, I, don't get me wrong, I am so happy that all the excuses for us being in places we don't need to be in are coming out as lies and disinformation, as the administration likes to call information that they don't like. But we, sir, but we do have a serious conundrum now. Why are we there? That question is going to be asked a lot more lately uh, and in the days to come. Uh, in other news, we have North Korea accusing the U.S. of sending spy planes into their exclusive economic zone. We have U.S. CENTCOM, uh, that's Central Command, claiming to have killed ISIS leader Usama al-Mahajir. Al-Mahajir. Yeah. Um, uh, yes. Okay. Well, we did that. Okay. Now let's leave. <laughs> so we killed this guy. We'll see what becomes of it, especially considering that we fund and subsidize ISIS's existence. Um, but you know, any, anything to help keep the military relevant, you know, uh, anything to distract away from all the American weapons that are being destroyed in Ukraine by the Russians. We have to have some W under our belt. And that that's what it's really come down to. Optics. It's all about distractions. Distract, distract, distract. This entire time, the Ukrainian counteroffensive has been going on, but we've been distracted by the submarine thing. Then we were distracted by the Biden scandal. Oh, and then we were distracted by the, the Trump in, indictment scandal. Now we're, that's the Biden scandal again, and we'll get into that in a few moments. And then it's oh the the, the Ukrainians, they they're um, you see uh they they are uh, ooh, and then they had to finally admit that the the counteroffensive wasn't going that well. And then and then we just stopped talking about it, you know, they, at least that's what they're trying to do. But you can only avoid the truth for so long because one day the war in Ukraine is going to end, and it's not going to be a Ukrainian victory. And that day is going to be the rudest awakening you've seen in quite some time. And that is sent, uh, very much what I'm going to label that episode, the rudest awakening. But in other news, we have, it's confirmed now. It's confirmed now that the new BRICS currency, the international currency, will be backed by gold. And I imagine that a number of the, the BRICS nations the, the BRICS plus nations, I should say now, a lot of them are probably going to just go the full way themselves and base their own currencies to gold because why not? Especially if they are major importing nations, they're going to base their currencies to gold and then they'll use the gold to exchange for Bri the new BRICS currency, whatever it ends up being called. Uh, it needs a name, doesn't it? I wonder what they'll call it. Because we, we can't just go on saying bricks currency. Oh, I'm going to give you five bricks. Like, what are, you, what are you giving me, drugs? Like, get away from me. Like, it needs a name. And I wonder what the name is going to be. They, that should definitely be on the list, on the agenda list when they get around to it. Uh, you know, make my life easier. But it's going to be backed by gold. And I imagine that countries like perhaps China or Russia, maybe India or Brazil, 
they might move their own national currencies because they're not going to get rid of it. They're going to have their own national currencies. And then for trade, they're going to use the BRICS currency. But why not move your own currencies to gold? I mean, the point of the goal is to hold the value of the BRICS currency. Why not have that for your own currency at home? And I imagine America won't be uh, too far behind in that regard, especially with the uh, uh, gold standard, with that gold standard act. Ah, uh, that's, it's not making much headway for now, but uh, it's there. It's there. Thank goodness for those MAGA Republicans for putting it there. But we, that act, I imagine when this great depression hits, it will be, it'll start making moves and we'll have a sound currency again. Oh, the gold standard restoration act. That, that's, that's the name of it. I was thinking of, but I, it was bl- I was blanking for a while. But yeah, so the world is going to be going back to gold, both for foreign and domestic reasons. And a lot of people are going to be better off because of it. A lot of people, and especially here in the United States, it's just a a positive feedback loop for the United States. Uh, When you have strong currency, you can buy more things with that currency. That's great for business. That's great for manufacturers especially when your nation is an importing nation like the United States has always been. We've always been a net importer. Even even at the height of our industrial prowess, we've always been an importer because we have to bring in lots of materials to make the things that we make. So it's good for manufacturers and it's good for the people at home because the people at home have to buy things. So if our dollar is stronger, then they can buy more of the things that we produce. It's just a positive feedback loop. Having a strong dollar is advantageous for us. And how we could ever have gotten to the point where we thought that devaluing the dollar was a good idea, uh, I don't know. That is a conversation for a different era. But it's good. It's good to see gold coming back to where it belongs. We have Re- Turkish President Recep Tayyip Erdogan reportedly giving his approval for Sweden's membership in NATO, which is something that he's sort of resisted on. It, it looked back way back last year when the war in ukraine began it looked like he had approved both sweden and finland at the same time because they were both trying to be admitted at the same time but he he sort of held off on both of them forced them to give him concessions uh regarding the kurds and kurdish their support for kurdish militant groups in syria then he allowed finland in and now it is reported he is going to be allowing sweden into nato as well now what exactly this is bringing to nato um, only NATO knows, uh, well, I suppose the Russians would know too, but NATO grows and NATO expansionism is going to force a Russian reaction because if NATO is just going to keep expanding and, and that's the reason that this war in Ukraine is even happening right now, then the rush, the obvious and necessary response from Russia is to expand out in the opposite direction and force NATO back. Ukraine cannot be a part of NATO. And at some point, the issue is going to be forced about the situation in the Baltics, who are going to be isolated once the situation in Ukraine is resolved, and it's going to be resolved on Russia's terms, probably with a massive annexation of territory. And the Baltics are going to be isolated. What happens then? We'll we'll have to wait and see. But NATO expansionism 
is once again running hard up against Russian red lines. Now, the Russians have said that Finland and Sweden can do what they want, but realistically, Russia recognizes NATO as a hostile entity, and it is. And so they've remilitarized. And with talk of a direct intervention into Ukraine becoming normalized, increasingly becoming normalized from multiple nations in NATO, it's it's getting to that point where we have to start re- seriously considering the possibility that NATO ends up in a direct war with Russia. And in that war, NATO's not going to win. I'll just say that right off the bat. NATO's not going to win. But I'll get more into that in, uh, later on in the episode. We have missile strikes hitting the West Ukrainian city of Lviv, killing four and injuring nine. Ukraine claims to have shot down a caliber hypersonic missile. Or a Kinzhal. I think it was a Kinzhal. Uh, That is blatantly false because they're using military equipment that is either Soviet era or American for their air defense. They... And neither one of us, the Soviets, America, Germany, and, and no one, no one except for perhaps the Russians or perhaps the Chinese, or if you believe them, the North Koreans, none of, no one aside from those countries can shoot down a hypersonic missile because no one aside from those countries even has a hypersonic missile. Again, if you believe the North Koreans. So this is a blatant lie. This is a blatant propaganda stunt, but don't let that stop the news and the propaganda press from doing what they do best. We have the U.S. now supplying cluster bombs to Ukraine. Again, it's just escalating and escalating and escalating. And as far as I am aware, this is literally a war crime. I was told this entire time that Putin was the war criminal. And yet here we are committing a, a literal war crime. But, you know, it, it's it's okay because it's Ukraine. It's, it's okay because it's Ukraine. It's, it's fucking disgusting. But this is where we are, and it's only going to get more dangerous from here until Trump wins. (laughs) And last but not least, we have the French energy company Total reaching a major oil and gas deal with Iraq. So perhaps France is bailing itself out from the ensuing energy crisis that's going to come again this winter. They, They did. Europe did a lot better than I thought that they would. During last winter, I made some pretty big predictions. So this time around, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to play the wait and see game. But until they can get their energy situation sorted out, either through the domestic production of energy or through some, some stable long-term deal with a foreign exporter, they're going to be having these issues chronically, which means that they're going to have, every time the winter gets bad, it, they are going to hurt. It's said that 65,000 people, and this is from The Economist, 65,000 people died last winter in Europe. And last winter was pretty mild. And they had gas reserves. I didn't believe them, but apparently they did. Will they do better this time around, or will they do worse? Because if they do worse, then now we're starting to see a trend where it gets worse and worse every year. They need a deal. And I'm telling you, they need coal and nuclear. If they had coal and nuclear, the, you know, the resources that Europe has, they, they'd be set. They wouldn't have to worry about this, but they don't. They want, they want solar panels and windmills, and they're just, that's, it's anti-humanist. People are going to die because of this, especially because they don't want the, the cheap Russian gas. So we, we'll see what happens this winter. We will definitely see what happens this winter, but that's the rapid fire. And we'll get into the meat of this episode in just a moment. 
Alrighty, let's get into the oh, I almost said the rapid fire news. Let's get into the meat of today's episode, shall we? We have the Biden scandal continued, uh, which has been an uh, I say continued because it's sort of been an, an on running scandal for the past few weeks. That for uh, somehow I, I really don't know how with how low the expectations are of this guy. I do not know how it keeps getting worse. I I honestly can't. First, it's the documents thing because they raided Trump's home of uh, Mar-a-Lago over uh, documents. He, they classified documents, even though the president has the sole authority to classify and declassify. Um, now they claim the people who are sort of on the side of the raid claim that he has to go through the presidential. Uh, dang, it's. What is it? It's it's this committee. Dang, I am so blanking on the name of this <laughs> on the name of this organization. Uh, but anyway, they raided Trump's home over these documents. Trump has the authority to declassify because he was the president, and there was a whole lawsuit over this with I believe Bill Clinton. And it's if the president takes the documents with them when they leave the White House, it is assumed declassified because they are the president. And if they take it with them, well, if they take it with them as they're becoming going back to being a, a regular citizen, well, then it is automatically declassified. That and a lot of the documents were declassified, just weren't marked declassified because they weren't stamped. So they raid his home over this, but then... Uh, about a, a week or so later, we found out that Biden had a whole bunch of documents that he did not have the authority to have because he took them when he was the vice president and when from when he was a senator. So he had no authority to take those documents. Now, sure, he's the president now, but he took those documents before. As in before he had the authority to classify and declassify. So there's that. That was one scandal. That was, you know, step one. Then there was, uh, before that, the Hunter Biden laptop scandal, which was very neatly buried just before the election. And that was sort of when the, the business dealings between Biden's, the Bidens, uh, Biden, Hunter, Joe, whichever one you want, between the Bidens and the Ukrainians of all people and the Chinese. Hmm, very interesting that we're dealing the situation that we're dealing with, with Russia and, uh, not Russia, with Ukraine and China, two countries that the, the Bidens have had deep business ties with. It's almost as if you could say there's a conflict of interest or corruption or that they're compromised because uh, the, the guy that they were sort of doing business with had recordings, audio recordings of them on the phone that he has at the ready to use in the event that he gets into trouble so that he can blackmail them into bailing him out. I mean, that is compromised. You are actually compromised. This administration is compromised. And they've been compromised long before they came into the White House. Then you had Hunter Biden uh, being investigated by the House Judiciary because of illegal possession of a weapon, uh, threatening to shoot somebody with said illegal weapon, driving down a highway at a, a hundred miles an hour while on cocaine. It, uh, 
like oh oh, oh my goodness it, it just it, the the show just goes on and on and on and now and now uh, again we we didn't think it could get weirder or worse and it found a way to do both now uh, last week there was a white powdery substance believed to be crack cocaine found in the on on white house grounds it wasn't found in the white house it was found on white house grounds now surely we the the finest intelligence services in the world would be able to track down a a simple drug user substance abuser uh especially when you're dealing with the white house but it turns out that they didn't need to track them down because the and we'll get into why because there was cocaine found in the west wing of the white house in a drawer in the oval office and later more cocaine was found in a cubby also in the west wing and then uh, i found this out a few moments before uh, i recorded this episode it, and there was crack found in the situation room. This is the room where they make all the, the important decisions and whatnot. And at this rate, there's probably going to be cocaine found somewhere else. I just like my goodness. <laughs> well, but these are all these are all the, the known locations as of the time of me recording this. But my goodness, uh, turning the White House into the crack house is crazy. That's that's crazy to me. Now, they have the blow, okay? They have the blow, right? But the question that's obviously on the entire nation's mind, the question that the entire nation is asking now is, do they have the hookers, you know? And see, this is why you guys listen to me, you know? Because I'm out here asking the real questions. Somebody's got to ask them, so it, it may as well be me. But turning the White House into the crack house is crazy. This is, this is crazy. This is crazy. We, we thought we had a scandal with Watergate. We thought we had a scandal with Bill Clinton and Monica Lewinsky. We thought that we had a scandal with Fast and Furious. I'm not talking about the movies. I'm talking about the operations that, that was carried out by the Obama administration where they were funneling weapons to drug cartels. Like, we thought we knew what a scandal was no the hell we don't there's a crackhead in the white house and he and he just can't get enough he he's doing it on the white house lawn he's doing it in the oval office he's doing it in the situation room he, he where hasn't he shot up the crack what what is happening what is ha- is he having like an episode or something because it's obviously hunter it's obviously Hunter or one of his friends or something. Like, what is going on? Like, oh my goodness. And no one bothered to clean it up? You, you just left it there so it could be found? Like, what is what is happening, dude? <laughs> this is crazy. So that, that that's what we've gotten this week. And I... I... Ugh. Turning the White House, I'll say it again, turning the White House into the crack house is crazy. But <laughs> moving on, um, the, the Bidens, I keep doing a lot. I keep doing that a lot. Oh, no, maybe it's a new thing. I hope not. Uh, it, it'll probably sound weird on the audio. But moving on, the Bidens are also under 
criminal investigation by the House Judiciary for a different reason, okay? Uh, uh, if you were listening to my previous episodes, you'll know that they were under investigation for those business dealings that I talked about a, a little bit uh, earlier uh, with the those Ukrainians, those Ukrainians. Uh, I say they are compromised because they are. And we, we went over the Biden, the Burisma scandal where Biden put his son Hunter on the board of Burisma and then somebody in Ukraine was investigating Burisma and then Biden comes along and threatens to withhold a billion dollars from the Ukrainians unless they fire that prosecutor. And then, well, uh, in the words of Joe Biden, son of a bitch, <laughs> that guy got fired. <sighs> so, lots of corruption, lots of other business dealings, five million, five million set aside for the big guy. And then we have you know, 10 million in total for Hunter and Joe on a separate deal, just millions upon millions upon millions. And then tax evasion on the part of Hunter Biden. It's just one scandal after the next. And they find a way to interweave into one another. Because before, if you'll remember, Biden denied having any connections to Hunter's business partners. And then like a week later, pictures surfaced of him standing next to said business partners on like a golf course. It's like, okay, okay. We're, we're dealing with pathological liars. Okay. And so they're under criminal investigation for these foreign business dealings that they've used high office for that. And that's the real problem. Uh, aside from the blatantly illegal nature in which they've conducted these business dealings, where they again, used influence and the power of high office to facilitate these deals. And then they tried to cover it up. You know, that, that's what really gets you. So you have that. And then in the background, you have the impending impeachment of Joe Biden steadily making its way, steadily making progress through the House. And at some point, at some point, given the Republican control of the House and the militant uh, nature of the MAGA Republicans when it comes to all things Joe Biden, it's probably going to result in actual impeachment hearings on this. And that's when I imagine a lot of things that we weren't hearing about are going to start to come out. When the investigator investigative agencies that have been so thoroughly weaponized against Trump for the past, what, uh, eight, seven, seven, eight years, when those guns get turned on Biden figuratively, of course, my goodness, if it was literally. But when those guns get turned on them, figuratively, given what we know now, and this is the public information, given what we know now, um, I only expect this scandal to f still find a way to get worse. It can only climb higher. Like, usually when it gets really bad, it's like, okay, it can only get better from here. No, we're, this is only the public information. This is only what's been dripped out to us. It's like, Okay, so if it only ever gets worse and you find and then you then find a way to make it even worse cuz you I, I you're just that you're just that bad. You're just that sloppy. You you can't you can't not take the drug. You can't not commit a crime to save your life. So when this guy goes through this impeachment hearings and he won't be convicted or at least he won't, unless the Democrats turn on him. He probably won't be convicted. The Democrats, it's still, what, 50-50 in the Senate? So, 
but he probably will end up being impeached, but not in, but not convicted. But the impeachment hearings are what's going to kill him, him and his son, because because their crimes are so intertangled with one another. You can't investigate Joe without investigating Hunter, and there's no investigation of Hunter, no honest investigation of Hunter that isn't going to find its way into what Joe Biden happened to be doing at the time, because they're so interwoven. It's it's a crime family, like Trump keeps calling them. This is bad. This is supposedly the president of the United States and his son doing crack in the White House. <laughs> I, I'm still just taken aback by the fact that no one bothered to clean that up. No one bought. It's one thing to find it on the White House lawn, all right? It's one thing to find the substance somewhere outside the building, all right? No one's cleaning that up. That's one thing. But to find it everywhere else inside of the building is crazy. So you you just saw it there. You just you just saw it. you you ain't gonna pick it up. You're not gonna you're gonna get you're not gonna go get a wet paper towel and you know like wipe it down. You're not gonna you're gonna get some uh, you're not gonna get some Windex some some pledge and start wiping down the the glass and the wood. You you're just gonna leave it right there. You're not gonna get a broom. No. Okay. We have a crackhead in the White House. We we have a crackhead in the White House. Oh my goodness! This is, these impeachment hearings going to be something. I'll just I'll just say that. Like I I know that he's not going to be convicted, or at least I have a very strong reason to assume that he won't. That being the Democrat control of the Senate, de facto control because Vice President, you know, that that's the tiebreaker. I. I. I, I, I just can't wait to see the impeachment hearings. Not because I expect he's going to be convicted, because he won't, probably, but because of all the extra juicy information that's going to come out of that. It won't be like Trump's impeachment, where they, they go through the whole thing, it's purely procedural, and then they find nothing, and then they impeach him, they impeach him anyway. Oh, no, 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 no. We're, we're going to have some ju- We're going to have some meat on those bones. And of course, I'm gonna be in on the gossip. Uh, look, look, I am completely open. I'll be, I'll just keep it 100% transparent with you guys. I have, uh, by way of this little podcast here, I have legitimate business interests in seeing this impeachment. <laughs> but yeah, that's gonna be a motherfucker for the Bidens, of course. It's gonna be great for me because I get to talk about it. But for the Bidens, oh my God, that impeachment is gonna kill them figuratively hopefully not literally you know but figuratively and it'll be very entertaining to watch uh it, it will it, it, if you if you think otherwise um you're wrong it will be very entertaining to watch especially with this public information that we have cuz with the de- with the degree of the cover up like when you see the lengths to which these agencies are willing to cover for the Bidens, the fact that we're getting the information that we're getting means that this is the least bad that it gets, right? This is the least bad that it gets. So when we get around to those impeachment hearings, oh boy, we're going to be hearing a lot of stuff. Uh, and maybe on the other side of that, he should be convicted. I still don't think that he will, but that is a story for a different day. But Nonetheless, 
in the background, you have the creeping ever present impeachment of Joe Biden making its way towards what will eventually will be proper hearings on it, you know, in the way that they did for Trump. And now, ironically, with all this, all of this, all the talk you'll hear of Putin or Xi Jinping having legitimacy issue, the same people who espouse such beliefs do not have similar criticism for the Biden administration, uh, not just for the scandal of what's going on right now, but for the fact that half the country uh, doesn't believe that the elections are in the up and up, uh, judging by <clears throat> 2020. So that's a, another very interesting observation that we can make here, but I'll leave that where it stands. But it's it's just one scandal after the next for this administration. And with election season about to start, I think the primaries for the Republicans are this August. And then, of course, it's going to be primary season for the Democrats starting sometime early next year. But we're already in the, the second half of 2023 now. It's July. Uh, oh, and hope you guys had a happy 4th of July. 147 years. 100. Uh, 100. No, no, no. 247 years. Let's make it double. Well, I mean, it's not quite double, but you know, you, you know, you know what I mean. You know what I mean. Two hundred forty-seven years. Let's try to get to two fifty. Try to get to two fifty, and then we'll try to get to five hundred, and then a thousand, and then two thousand, and then we can finally tell the Chinese to shut up when they talk about their five thousand year of history, or w what number will they be at at that point? Like eight thousand. They'll, they'll they'll pull something, you know. They'll, they'll never they'll they'll never leave it alone. Even when we get to one thousand, they'll be like, ha, ha, we have we have uh ha, we have six thousand. And then we'll have to tell them, ah, we don't care. <laughs> but, you know, you know, friendly rivalry. That, that's how it should be between us and China. You know, not this, oh, we're going to go fight them. Ah. But with election season about to start, I do imagine that these scandals for the Biden administration are going to become a lot more painful because you have a lot more scrutiny during election season. That Now, will he emerge as the candidate? Well, we'll, we'll really have to see. Election season is when things like this can really can really do some damage. Uh, the Biden, the Hunter Biden laptop thing. What, what, what was it? 10, 15 percent of the Biden voters said that they wouldn't have voted for him if it were, if they had actually known about that. Well, that that flips an election right there. So with all this going on and the impeachment trial is probably going to begin either sometime late this year or sometime during 2024. And that's going to be damning. Because, again, these things have a lot more impact during election year. Nobody wants to vote for the guy with a crackhead as their son. And with RFK Jr. coming along, being a major contender, serious questions about Biden's uh, viability as a candidate will arise. So, will Biden debate RFK Jr.? Will, the, will Biden himself become the nominee and win it all? Will Hunter Biden go to jail? Find out on the next episode of The Real Swamp Creatures of D.C. <laughs> oh, boy. But moving on, moving on, we have a very interesting glimpse into the multipolar world. We're, we, we get to see the multipolar world in action because of what Turkey has done recently. Uh, and this is really a sort of a interplay between Russia and Turkey. Because last week, Turkey handed over three of the three leaders from the Azov Battalion. 
who surrendered in Mariupol, the Azov-style uh, plant, that steel plant, if you remember in the, the last, the final days of the siege of Mariupol, there were the, that hold those troops that were holding out in the Azov-style steel plant. Yeah, when they surrendered, their leaders from the Azov Battalion, uh, they, as, as part of the terms for their surrender, they were allowed to go to Turkey where they were supposed to stay. They were supposed to stay in Turkey until the war was over. But Turkey, under Erdogan, handing over these three leaders to Ukraine, and there was a big welcoming ceremony there. So any, you know, any, any, any uh, rebuttal to the idea that Ukraine is a Nazi state, um, may those rebuttals, may those words forever rest and hold their peace because they celebrated the return of Nazis to their country. Literal, literal Nazis. Like, the Azov guys are as Nazi as they get. I, I don't know what to tell you. But upon sending these Azov leaders back to Ukraine, where they will probably go back to playing leadership roles in Ukraine or somewhere in Ukraine, on doing this and reneging on the surrender deal of these men that they had when they were allowed to leave Mariupol, they've, the Turks have created a lot of problems between themselves and Russia. And Russia, although only partially in response to this, there was a, a, a different list of grievances that the Russians had. Um, the Russians have pulled out of the grain deal. And they did this because they accused Ukraine of using the safe harbors, which were meant for the movement of their agricultural produce, you know, out onto the wider market. So they didn't, you know, their economy didn't completely implode on itself. Russia accused Ukraine of using these safe harbors meant for the transportation of their agricultural produce to import weapons while simultaneously denying the free flow of Russian grain through these same passages by essentially accusing the Russians of having stolen the grain from Ukraine. And then they go through boarding and checks that were carried out by the Turks and the Turkish Navy. Uh, so you had a lot of tensions a lot of grievances that were built up over this period of time, uh, over the course of the last year. And now it's sort of, it's sort of all sort of unraveling at the same time. If I, if I am reading into this correctly, it's sort of unraveling all at the same time, which gives us a, a bit of things to talk about. So this is going to have major ramifications on food prices, primarily among countries in the Middle East and Africa, because they are the most dependent on Russian and Ukrainian grain. So the, the, fact, the, the, the fact that Ukrainian grain is now um, back on open season for Russian, <laughs> the Russian drones and missiles and the Russian Navy is going to mean that essentially Russia is going to put a blockade on Ukraine's ports again. Russia is going to blockade the dog shit out of Ukraine's ports again. And there's nothing Ukraine can do about it. Cause this time they can't be bailed out by a deal because the, they and Turkey were trying to extend the grain deal, which was the, you know, the free flow. They were trying to extend that deal, but the Russians said, no, you know, we're not going to do that. So this is going to go down. The deal is going to end. The Russians are going to resume the blockade of Ukrainian grain. And they're going to start shooting at it. 
and their excuses, oh, you were you were funneling weapons. You were not negotiating in good faith. You were not carrying out the, the terms of this deal in good faith. And so we're just not going to deal with you. Now that has ramifications. Before we move on, it just sort of dawned on me that that collapse in trust on this deal is going to build further on the case, which is eventually going to be made in Russian high command, that you can't, it's going to build on that case, that you cannot negotiate with Ukraine. Because Again, we have to go back to 2014, not start at 2022. Minsk one, the Ukrainians didn't, they didn't honor their end of the deal. Minsk two, Ukraine didn't honor their end of the deal. And they pretended to for eight years so that they could rearm, which meant blatantly violating the deal in the very end, which is why Russia invaded them to begin with. They didn't honor that end of the deal. Then when the Russians came in and they forced Ukraine to the table again for the unofficial Minsk three deal that the Ukrainians, the Ukrainian delegation initialed, we now know that they did, we now know that they had reached a preliminary deal back in March or late March and early April of 2022, when the war began. And then they went back on it, they went back on every piece and decided that they would rather fight the war to the better end. They went back on so you can't negotiate on so many levels. And now here's another one. Uh, there's just plenty of examples of time after time after time where the Ukrainians and the Ru- reach a deal with Russia only to go back on their word. Now, in this case, it's the, the Turks who have facilitated the, the reneging of this deal. But it's not just the Azov people who were supposed to stay in Turkey being handed over, it's the grain deal and Ukraine using that deal in bad faith to import weapons into Ukraine. Or at least that's what the Russians accused them of doing. So if that's what the Russians are accusing them of doing, then obviously they don't trust that they're doing this in good faith. And now they have welcomed back in these Azov leaders. Now, the Ukrainians could have said no, because it's not like Turkey just woke up one day and said, hey, we're going to release these guys. Here you go. And we're going to send them back home. No. Ukraine could have said, hey, we would we would love to have them back, but we agreed, we made this deal with Russia as part of their surrender. They have to stay in Turkey until the war is over. They could have done that, but they didn't. They let them back in. So they did go back on their word, even though it was largely, it was a reneging of that deal was largely facilitated by Turkey. But here, yet again, you have another two instances in the case of what we're talking about right now, another two instances of Ukraine making a deal with Russia and then going back on it or or being duplicitous in it or using the deal in bad faith to do things that are going to harm Russia. And I made the case when this war began that what reason does Russia have to believe that Ukraine would honor a deal? Like when when the idea of a negotiated settlement sort of became popularized, like around the fall of last year, around the fall of last year, when the idea of a, a negotiated settlement started started becoming more popularized in the in the mainstream talk, it, it was already making its rounds during the summer of last year. During in the sources that I listened to, like Jimmy Dore, Jack Finkel, 
uh, the Duran, Scott Ritter, Dux McGregor, they were already talking about that. They were ahead of the curve. Then when it made its way mainstream in uh, the fall, winter of last year, when, when that sort of came to the front, I was there, you know, pitching in, in my, my way that I do, you know, it's, it's, it ain't much, but it's honest work. I came in and I said, what reason, I asked the question, what reason does Russia have to trust that Ukraine would honor a deal? They went back on Minsk one, they went back on Minsk, oh my God, they, they pretended to implement Minsk two for eight years. It's not even that they just went back on that, that they didn't implement it. It's that they lied about it for eight years for the sole purpose of arming and building up their military so so they could fight Russia. They they signed and initialed the deal with Minsk, with the unofficial Minsk three deal that they reached back in March of last year. Putin just exposed Ukraine a few weeks ago when he showed off the deal that they had and the stipulations of that deal, which gave Ukraine everything it could have wanted except for the Donbass. But you can't fault Putin for that because they were already going to get the Donbass had they gone along with Minsk too. The Donbass was going to be, uh, they were going to have autonomy. They were going to have autonomy in Ukraine but that they were going to still be a part of Ukraine with Minsk II. And with Minsk I, had they just agreed to the ceasefire and to stop the fighting, they would have had it all. They would have had Crimea, they would have had the Donbass, and they would have had full sovereignty. No changes would have had to be made to Ukraine internally whatsoever. But they couldn't do it. They said no to that deal, they reneged on it, they lied about the second deal, and then violated it in every way possible for eight years. They signed and initialed the third deal, and then went back on their word to fight Russia for another year. And they, they make this grain deal. They reach this deal with Russia last year for the passage of grain. And then they use that to import weapons. And now here they are accepting these three leaders from Azov who were supposed to stay in Turkey for the duration of the war as per their surrender at Mariupol. And now they're welcoming them back in. They're giving them the heroes welcome. It's just another two heaps of sand to go onto the, the mountain that we already have. You, if Ukraine cannot be trusted to honor these deals, every deal that they make with the Russians, they, they break the deal. If they can't be trusted to honor the deal, then why? what incentive does Russia have for a negotiated settlement? And why would they do it? And why would they do it with a ritualistic, pathological liar like Ukraine? The Ukrainians lie to the Russians about everything. And every time they make a deal, the Ukrainians break the deal or they don't implement it. So what chance is there now of a negotiated settlement with two more broken deals on the part of Ukraine? I don't think that there's going to be a negotiated settlement. I really don't. And this just sort of confirms my belief. It furthers it along because now there's two more instances. Because you know this conversation is going to be had at some point in the high in the halls of Russian government, in the Russian high command, when they get around to asking themselves the question of what exactly they're going to do with Ukraine. 
they're going to have to ask, okay, are we going to annex it? Are we going to annex most of it, half of it? Because we're obviously going to take land. We're not giving up Kherson and Zaporizhia. We're not giving up the Donbass. And we're certainly not giving up Crimea. We're probably going to go all the way to Transnistria. But what what else? Are we going to go into Ruthenia or Carpathia? Are we going to go into Galicia? You know, the western parts of Ukraine? Are we going to leave that autonomous? At some point, they're going to have to ask what they're going to do with Ukraine. But the chances that Ukraine could have gotten a negotiated settlement are going to be a lot slimmer now. Because when they when they and the United States and the West eventually approach Russia for such an arrangement, it's inevitably going to come up in the Russian circle when they're discussing this. But can we trust the Ukrainians to honor whatever deal we make? If they break every other deal, why should we believe that they won't break this ceasefire that we're going to make with them now? In the event that they even bother considering a negotiated settlement at this point in time, there's just, there's no reason to. If you're Russian, you've been you've been burned enough to know that the fire is hot. There's no point in touching the fire again to see if it's cooled down. It's going to burn you. There's no point in extending an olive branch to the Ukrainians when you know, and extending a deal to the Ukrainians when you know that they're going to break it. I don't think there's going to be a negotiated settlement. And this further cements my belief. Um, so, I, and I'll sort of come back from that side note. We have the multipolar worlds to talk about. Because Turkey did this. And this is going to have major ramifications on food prices uh, in the Middle East and Africa. But it's also, like I said, a glimpse into the way that the multipolar world order functions. The, a way, the way that the world used to work before the last 200 years or so with the industrial revolution the massive imbalance in power dynamics created by that where the united states and the industrialized countries of europe had this ridiculous level of power compared to everyone else it's it took a while for everyone else to catch up but now that everyone else is caught up and we've deindustrialized, now the world goes back to functioning like normal and that is the multipolar world order and Turkey has given us a sort of example of how nations in that world order function. Even as we're not quite yet in the multipolar world, it's still emerging. It's not solidified yet. But Turkey's given us a masterclass, and we're going to study it for a little bit. Because Turkey, as a NATO member, they have come under a lot of scrutiny. A lot of scrutiny for the role that they have played in the Russo-Ukrainian war. The, world, the role they've played as a mediator, as an arms dealer, as a middleman of goods and trade and energy, and as a future gas hub, because they accepted that deal from the Russians. <clears throat> All things that were in Turkey's interest to do, mind you. But now, be, but because that they try to play both sides in the same way that Belarus tried to do, in the same way that Ukraine could have done, because Turkey is also a NATO member, because they are technically in with the West, but they have the door open to the East, and they've been talking a lot with the Russians, and they even got S-300s or S-400s, I believe. And that, that, that was a, a scandal in and of itself. But because Turkey has been doing things that are in its interest to do, while simultaneously being caught between uh, 
two superpowers. They've been forced into a really tough situation. Because as a NATO member, it is expected that you will go along with NATO. And what has NATO been doing? They've been going all in on using Ukraine as a vassal to destroy Russia. But what has Turkey been doing? They've been playing both sides. At the beginning of the war, they were selling drones to the Ukrainians. Selling, not giving. They didn't, they didn't just hand over the weapon. No, they sold it. You want these drones? You, you can buy them. Brokey. <laughs> and they did. Which is honestly what we should have been doing. If we were going to be involved in the war at all, the Ukrainians should have been buying the equipment, not us giving it away. Because now we have to pay to get it back. The Turks don't have that problem. The money's already been the money's already been delivered to the account. But because they are a NATO member, it is expected that you go along with NATO. And all of NATO, the United States, every country in Europe, they've been all in on Ukraine and destroying Russia. But except for Turkey. Turkey's been partially on Ukraine's side. Then they were uh, then they were a mediator, and then they sort of slid over to the Russian side, onto the side of the multipolar world order, because they can see the winds. They know what way the wind is blowing, and it's not towards this American empire, or as people have taken to calling it today, the collective West. It's not blowing in our favor. It's blowing in the favor of the multipolar world order. Turkey is hitching its wagon to that world order, but because they're still playing the two sides and one of those sides is our side they have certain obligations that they have to meet and they have, and because they have not met those obligations those expectations and they know the, the kinds of people that they're dealing with they were put in a very rough situation i mean turkey is well aware erdogan especially He's well aware that the U.S. and NATO has been breathing down his neck over his refusal to be all in on Ukraine just by playing a much more neutral role than any other country in NATO has. He has all of them breathing down his neck. Erdogan also has personal experience uh, such that he know he's well aware of America in particular, America's nasty habit of overthrowing governments it doesn't like. Remember back in 2016 when there was that attempted coup against Erdogan? He knows the kinds of people that he's dealing with on both sides of the equation, both the American side and on the, the Russian Chinese side. And so even as he's hitching his wagon to the multipolar world, he's covering his flank by doing these things because there's a lot of talk about how he's he's pissed off the Russians, undoubtedly. Pissed off the Russians. But in a way, it was sort of necessary for him to do. It was necessary for him to approve Sweden being led into, into NATO. It was necessary for him to approve sending these, these leaders, these Azov battalion leaders back to Ukraine. It was necessary for him to appease the United States and NATO. It was necessary. So that, ironically, it was necessary for him to appease the West so that he could finish the job in interfacing and interconnecting with the East, if that makes sense. He had to, he had to throw the West off of his scent so that he could buy the time necessary, the, the time and the security necessary to finish integrating Turkey with the emerging multipolar world order. 
And as a result, he's given us, uh, I say Erdogan, but Turkey in general has given us a very good example of a country acting in their own self-interest. And they've been doing that for the course of the, the entirety of the war. Um, but with the emerging multipolar world order, I just thought I'd, you know, just throw that in. At the cost of pissing off the Russians, of course, but he, again, Turkey can keep America at bay and perhaps keep them at bay long enough for the American empire to cease its existence. I, I honestly don't see the American empire outlasting Ukraine, certainly not outlasting the Taiwan situation, especially the Taiwan situation. If we go to war with China over Taiwan, that's the economic collapse will kick in immediately. And then there is no more empire. And perhaps that's how this whole thing ends with Taiwan. But Turkey has very, maybe not excellently, maybe not excellently, but very smartly. They've done it. They've done it smart enough because they've done it successfully. They have threaded the needle, but between the two sides that they are placed, they're on both sides right now. They're, they're trying to get the maximum benefit out of both. But they know that going all in on the multipolar side of things will evoke an incredibly negative reaction and response from the American empire. And they don't want to deal with that right now, while the American, at least not while the American empire still has the potency to do some serious damage to Turkey. Uh, I mean, in short, Turkey, a regional power, caught between two superpowers, had to appease one superpower, America, in order to buy the time necessary to complete its transition away from America and towards the multipolar world order led by Russia and China. The cost was pissing off the Russians. But he bought time keeping America at bay so that Turkey could solidify, so the Turkey could solidify its place in the multipolar world order as it sort of solidifies in the region, that being the Middle East. And as the multipolar world order takes a hold, because it, it takes time to replace whole entire world orders. It takes time for countries to start doing things differently. Now, it's moving at a rapid pace, don't get me wrong, but it's still we're still living in the liberal world order. But as that world, that American-led structure begins to decline, and it's in steep decline, he moves over to this new, the new order. But it's the transition period that's dangerous for Turkey. He wants the security of the multipolar world order. You get economic investment from China, you get military security from Russia. And you don't have America overthrowing everyone's governments and creating wars and conflict and chaos. But that transition globally is not complete. It's not even complete in the region yet. Even though it's made significant progress, America still has the power and influence to throw wrenches into that plan. So if you want security, and you're, you have the security of being in the American umbrella, right? That, that's partial security, and you also have the security of being so close to the multipolar world. So by appeasing America, you can finish integrating with the multipolar world. And the and another reason why they do this is so that they are not sabotaged by the United States. Because had they had they gone all in on Russia, all in on China, and just cut ties, or 
prevented or presented the appearance of having cut ties with the American empire. America would have gone all in on another government regime change attempt. America would have sabotaged Turkey like we do whenever we don't get our way with a country. We would have tried to sabotage them, especially with the whole gas hub deal, especially with the Turks as the go-to mediator for peace deal between Ukraine and Russia. If there is to be a deal reached between those two, it's probably going to be hashed out in Turkey. It's probably going to be hashed out there. So you, you're, you are a target. This war has made Turkey much more relevant in geopolitics than it's been in quite some time. But with that relevance has come the danger of being a little too relevant and catching the eye of, un, of people you don't want to catch the eye of. People in the United States that have an itchy trigger finger for overthrowing people's governments. So by appeasing America, Turkey has bought themselves the time to go all in on the multipolar world. Because now it's oh okay they're they're still on our side okay they're still they're not all they're not with Russia all the way they they stab Putin in the back yeah they they they're helping Ukraine by giving them their leaders back yeah Turkey's on our side and then when the whole thing ends Turkey will still have its place in the multipolar world so all that's to say all that is to say that long rant is to say that. Similar to Iran, Turkey has given us a lesson in how to navigate through tough decisions while in pursuit of one's strategic interests. And as the American-led liberal world order comes to a close, along with America's ability and desire to control other countries, as, as that wanes, more countries, like Turkey, will be able to pursue their own strategic interests and increasingly, those interests are going to be within the context of a multipolar world. So it's it's been very interesting to observe. It's been very interesting to observe this, this piece of diplomatic, diplomatic thread weaving, if I have to call it something. But yeah, very, very interesting. Very interesting indeed and we'll see how it plays out for turkey i i do believe turkey has a brighter future in the multipolar world i do believe instead of the status quo which is the liberal world order i think they have a brighter future i think a lot of countries have a brighter future in the multipolar world to tell you the truth um now in terms of relative power it, it's going to go back to the east and then it's going to go to the middle east now a lot of people aren't looking at the middle east i think the middle east are going to rise uh, tremendously this century just by way of the demographic declines in the West and in Asia. The Middle East is going to be a force to be reckoned with. But that is uh, a topic that I talked about a few weeks ago. So check that episode out. We talked about the rise of the Middle East. But with that being said, but with that being said, we've gotten another master class in how to pursue real strategic interests First it was Iran, then it was Russia, then it was China, now it's Turkey. Oh, excuse me. Uh, I thought I had to sneeze. I thought I had to sneeze, but then it didn't come out. And you, you ever get that? Uh, but, I, but anyway, we have Turkey playing their cards as best they can. Maybe it wasn't the perfect hand. Maybe the Russians won't forgive them this time. But... If there was a chance, they've taken it. 
And so we'll see how this plays out. Very interesting to watch. Uh, I gotta say, I'm really enjoying watching the rise of this multipolar world order. But that being said, we'll move on to our next topic. And our next topic is the slide to war. The slide to war. Because we have Tobias Elwood, a British member of parliament, who is now calling for the direct involvement of the UK and of the West in general. And he's been doing so for months now, but uh, he's made new calls, new fervent calls for a direct involvement in the Russo-Ukrainian war. And so reading this story now by itself, it really didn't by itself. It didn't set up too many alarm bells. It's like, oh, okay. That's another guy saying we have to go help Ukraine. Oh, it's another guy saying, oh, yada, yada, yada. We're going to be, we're, we're going to stand with Ukraine uh, as long as it takes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. More money, more weapons. We, we need to be there by their side. It's like, okay, God, okay, dude. But given what we talked about last week with Lindsey Graham and Blumenthal last weekend, the week before that, I should say, with them essentially laying out a footprint, a blueprint, if you will, for how, how Ukraine can drag NATO into the war by attacking a nuclear power plant. And then just letting letting the natural bias of the propaganda press take its course. Because if Ukraine bombs a power plant, a nuclear power plant, and then you have fallout from the, the reactor meltdown, the propaganda press isn't going to go, oh, look, it was the Ukrainians shelling that. No, they don't tell the truth. They do not tell the truth. They will sit there and lie like their lives depend on it and say that the Russians did it. And once they say that the Russians bombed this, this nuclear power plant, and the one that we're primarily looking at is the one in Zaporozhia, but honestly, it could be any nuclear power plant in Ukraine, and they could just say that a Russian missile hit it. That's the real, that's the real danger here. We, we probably don't even know the name of the power plant that could be attacked, quote-unquote attacked, at any moment in time and the ukrainians will just say that the russians did it the propaganda press won't question them they won't fact check them they'll say that the russians did it and by way of blumenthal and lindsey graham we they've laid out okay if this happens well then then the fallout's going to affect the nato ally article 5 is there for a reason we need to be ready to be directly involved in ukraine now you have this tobias elwood guy saying we need to be directly involved in Ukraine. The escalation of the rhetoric has gone from we're going to be we're going to stand with Ukraine as long as it takes. We're going to give them the weapons and the money that they need to. OK, it's time to put the boots on the ground. That's something that wasn't there before. That's something that wasn't there before, not to this degree and certainly not from these prominent voices in America, Britain, and in other places. But then it's it's not just the escalation of rhetoric, it's the escalation of the kinds of weapons we've given to Ukraine. Because when the war began, it was artillery, it was small arms, it was rifles, it was bullets, you know, it was drones, javelins, and stingers, and and then it and then it evolved to Patriot systems. The Germans had their their anti-air, their brand new air defense system that they didn't even have in their army yet, 
they came off the production lines and went straight to Ukraine. So we we started handing over the brand new weapons to the Ukrainians, the air defense systems, all right? All these things you could say are necessary for the defense, all right? Okay, that's believable. An air defense system, you, you can't use that to shoot at other people. So, okay, it's defense, all right? We emptied the Soviet era equipment of the NATO countries that used to be a part of the Eastern Bloc. We gave it all to Ukraine because the Ukrainians ran on Soviet era equipment. Then the HIMARS started going to Ukraine, along with a third of our HIMARS ammunition. And, and at that point, it's like, um, okay, maybe we're maybe we're going a little too heavy into this whole standing with Ukraine thing. But it didn't end there, obviously, because then it the British gave them depleted uranium rounds. As and then they gave them their long-range storm shadow missiles. We gave them tanks, and there was a whole lot of talk last summer about the tanks. Oh, we're gonna give them tanks, these advanced, sophisticated Western tanks from America, Britain, Germany is gonna send them Leopard twos. We're gonna Britain's gonna send them the Challenger twos. America is gonna send them Abrams tanks. It's gonna it's gonna change the game. It's gonna change the battlefield. Russia can't handle it. And then when we finally got the numbers for that. It was oh the the, the Germans are gonna send them uh, two tanks. Then okay they they did send them more. Obviously they sent them like 20, 30 tanks. We sent them like 30, 40 tanks. A lot more Bradleys, but we sent them we sent them more than what the initial numbers that came out were. Uh, but more didn't mean meaningful numbers, okay? 20 tanks, 30 tanks, 50 tanks. That's not a lot. That's maybe a battalion. Not, okay, we can supply the army. We can supply a division with tanks. No, that, that's nothing. Especially consider that the Ukrainians can't repair or fix any of this if it breaks down or if it gets damaged. So, we did that. But there was a whole lot of talk about tanks. A whole lot of talks about tanks. Then we sent tanks. There was a, we, we, we said that we wouldn't send tanks. Germany said they wouldn't send tanks, and they sent the tanks. We said that we wouldn't send fighters. Now we're talking about sending them F-16s and other fighters from Europe. There, there's, there's been talk of, ever since we gave them HIMARS. There's been talk of giving the Ukrainians the Attackums long-range missile systems. There, there's talk of bringing Ukraine into NATO, right? There's been all, all these escalations, all these escalations. We Didn't we just, uh, earlier on in this episode, I brought up that the United States is now sending Ukraine cluster bombs. A literal war crime. It is a literal war crime to use cluster bombs. And we're now giving them, handing them out for free, like candy, on Halloween to the Ukrainians for them to use against Russia. And yet, Putin's the war criminal? Like, even if he is, okay, let's not become war criminals ourselves. Especially if you're going to moralize the conflict and say, oh, we have to be there, we have to help the Ukraine. Well, okay, well, let's not be the war criminals ourselves. We're giving them... We've given them depleted uranium. The Russians bombed that one storehouse of Ukrainian ammunition that had depleted uranium in it. So now a whole portion of Ukraine is going to be poisoned for uh, some years to come. 
The British gave them that. We gave them that. We're talking about giving them more long-range weapons. We're giving them cluster bombs. And we gave them all these tanks, all these armored vehicles. We gave them all these anti-tank and anti-air missile systems. It's just escalation after escalation after. We gave them $200 billion. And now we're talking about letting Ukraine into NATO. Now there's talk of a, of a Polish slash NATO intervention in Western Ukraine. You have Lindsey Graham and Blumenthal again laying out the roadmap to war, where if a, a nuclear power plant just so happens to be attacked in a way that leaks radiation, okay, well now Poland's in danger, Romania's in danger, blah blah blah, Article Five, and now all of, all of NATO can just jump into the war. And then you have Biden and other officials repeating that line that we've been hearing this entire war. We'll stand with Ukraine for as long as it takes. We will support Ukraine for as long as it takes. No plan for victory, no end game, no win condition. Because they can't tell you what the win condition is. It's the destruction of Russia, but that's never going to happen. Not, not by our hands, anyway. It's just escalation after escalation after escalation layer upon layer of commitment to Ukraine and the war that they, not us, that they are fighting and there's just no limit. There's no there's no point beyond which we won't go. There's just more escalation. And now we're reaching a point where we are very quickly running out of room for us to escalate in this conflict without getting directly involved, without having boots on the ground. I mean, we already, I didn't even, I, I forgot to mention this in uh, when I was talking about the earlier escalations, but from the beginning of the war, we've been giving Ukraine access to our intelligence services and our satellites. Elon Musk let them use Starlink until they, they cussed him out on Twitter. We, we've been providing them real-time intelligence gathering. You remember those those drones those converted drones into sort of missiles that flew all the way to Engels Air Base the one with the nukes in it when when I was making my case as to why Ukraine is a nuclear terrorist state those drones had to have been guys considering how deep into Russia Engels Air Base is it's like it's like past the Volga River and the Volga is hundreds of miles away from Ukraine or away from the border or at least the part of the Volga that we're talking about. The only way that those could have gotten that deep into Russia without being intercepted is if they were being guided by real-time U.S. intelligence of the Russian radars, helping the Ukrainians guide these missiles through to their target. The the Amer We've been giving them real-time information on the battlefield so they could respond whenever the Russians made a breakthrough. We've been belt feeding them money, weapons, intel, equipment. It's, it just never stops. It just never stops. We're talking about bring them into NATO now. We gave them all this, all this money, all these weapons for this counter offensive that is now failing. 
miserably. There's, it's now estimated that there are around 20,000 casualties from this over the course of just the last month alone with this counteroffensive. 20,000 casualties. Which means about 10,000 dead if the fatality ratio that the Ukrainians have had, this abnormally high fatality ratio that they've had, holds up over the course of the offensive, which is nearly half of their casualties are usually deaths. That means around 10,000 men died in this. They went through hundreds of armored vehicles, dozens and dozens and dozens of tanks. And it and we're still talking about more money, more weapons for Ukraine. We're still talking about Ukraine achieving this final victory. We we flat who was that? John Kirby, John Kirby, our, what, our national, oh no, the spokesperson, the spokesperson for our national security. He flat out rejected the possibility of peace. Flat out rejected it. You had Annalena Baerbach in Germany saying she doesn't care what the German voters think. She's going to stand with Ukraine uh, until the very end. And going back before the war began, you had goof, you had goofy goober Jens Stoltenberg, who's been reappointed as the head of the, the, the NATO Secretary General. He was out there talking wild shit about how Russia had no legitimate security concerns in the continent that Russia is. In the continent that Russia exists on, Europe, Russia has no legitimate security concerns. Like, really think about this. And and we're constantly expanding NATO. We're, we just expanded NATO into two countries now. And we're trying to add Ukraine to that list. Which is why this war began to begin with. NATO expansion running hard up against Russian red lines. The, it's just escalation after escalation after escalation. And we're even now talking about nuclear escalation, Ukraine attacking nuclear facilities, and we still support them. We support a nuclear terrorist state. They attack Engels Air Base, where Russian nuclear missiles are, nuclear warheads are. They attack Chernobyl to try to slow down the Russian advance when they first came in. They attack the nuclear power plant in Kherson. They attack the nuclear power plant in Zaporozhye. They attack nuclear power plants all the time. And they, they're still attacking it. They're still attacking the dam, the, the Novaya Kokovka dam, which, if damaged badly enough, could cause serious damage to the Zaporozhye nuclear power plant. And they know this. And, and they keep doing it. They keep doing it, and then we keep rewarding them with more money and more weapons and now we're talking about direct involvement because the war is not going our way. So now it's time for the boots on the ground. You had Poland talking about it, an intervention force. You had, you had the talk of sending peacekeepers into Ukraine and just unilaterally imposing a peace without consulting the Russian side. If you send peacekeepers into Ukraine, 
without telling the Russians that they're there, they're going to get bombed. And then you have dead NATO troops who were killed by Russian artillery. And that's a case for war, as stupid as it might have been to go in, you'll have a case for war then. And you have all of NATO going to war with Russia. You have Blumenthal and Lindsey Graham talking about, oh, if, if there's a damage to the power plant or if Putin uses a tactical nuclear de device, Putin's not going to use a tactical nuclear device. Just stop it. Just stop it. They know he's not. And they know that he's not the one attacking power plants. It's the Ukrainians. They know this. They have intel. All these same, the same intelligence committees, not committees, intelligence agencies that have been belt feeding Ukraine real-time intelligence, they know who's attacking these power plants and it's not the Russians. The IAEA went in and the Russians had to escort them in and out of the power plant because the Ukrainians were still shelling it at the time. And yet we continue to endorse this through our actions. And now we're talking about direct involvement into this war. It, it just doesn't end. There's no upper limit to how far we're going to go with this Ukraine thing. And that is incredibly dangerous. Because if NATO ends up at war with Ukraine, I mean, not at war with Ukraine, if NATO ends up at war with Russia, it's a wrap. It is a wrap. Not just for the, the Baltics or for Finland, for that matter. Assuming that the Russians choose to fight that war in conventional terms, because they, they could just go nuclear. They honestly could just go nuclear if they really wanted to. But I don't think that they want to. But if push comes to shove, they will. We should not be provoking them and putting them in a situation where they even have to make that choice. But we just we we just can't leave it alone. You, we, Ukraine has been given multiple olive branches. Minsk 1, they refused. Minsk 2, they refused. Unofficial Minsk 3, they refused because we came in, we intervened and told them it was better, it was a better idea to fight a war with the Russians than to make peace. We told them it was a better idea to fight the Russians than to make peace because we didn't want peace with Russia. Because we could not accept a neutral Ukraine. And now Ukraine dies. And because we fucked up and we, we simultaneously have leaders who are too immature to admit that they fucked up and come to the table, the negotiating table, and say, hey, what are your terms? We can hash this out. We can talk. They don't want to do that. They would rather watch the entire world burn than to lose face, than to be embarrassed, than to admit that they were wrong. And they would rather take all of NATO to war with Russia over Ukraine than to simply admit that they lost, that they made a mistake, that they got Russia wrong, that Russia was not a gas station masquerading as a country, but that it was a great power. They don't want to admit that. They don't want to admit that they were wrong. They don't want to admit that their dream of dismantling Russia was just that. A dream, a pipe dream, a fantasy, and it's never going to be realized. They don't want to admit that. They don't want to acknowledge that we're not as strong as we used to be. And it's a result of their globalist, anti-humanist policies of deindustrialization. They don't want to admit that. They don't want to admit that they have made this country 
and all of the West, save for Russia, because Russia didn't go along with it, they made all of the West weak. And now that weakness is on full display. They don't want to admit that they can't win a fight against Russia. Because that means that they can't do jack diddly or squat to China. And they definitely can't say that to China. They don't want to give up the crusade for their democracy. And it's important to recognize their democracy, not democracy, their democracy, where they get to choose who the leaders are. And if you, the voter, has different opinions, then they simply overthrow the person that you elected. Their, their democracy, not you. They don't want to give it up. They don't want to give up their control over the world. They don't want to surrender the empire. And they would rather send everybody to war and have everyone die in nuclear fire than to go home. And that is the real danger we face, dealing with people like this. This is the slide into war. It's not, it's not a slippery slope anymore. We're sliding. We're sliding. And unless something changes fast, we could wake up one day to some bum in the White House telling us on Twitter, oh, they, oh yeah, by the way, we're at war with Russia. That is the danger. But let's hope it doesn't get to that. Let's seriously hope it doesn't get to that. But all we can do is hope and pray. All we can do is hope and pray that sane people win out in the very end, even if those people just so happen to be the, the China Hawks. Ironically, they might be the ones to save us from this impending catastrophe. But hopefully someone has enough uh, maturity or uh, scruples to say that, you know what, this Ukraine thing, it's just not worth it. And it's time to put it down and leave it alone. Russia won. Let's come to the table. What are your terms? Okay, let's work this out. And I hope that that's what happens. But honestly, we'll just have to wait and see. We will just have to wait and see. But that, my lovely listeners, is all that I have got for you today. We have, we've, t- we've covered a lot. We've covered a lot. We had an interesting lesson in pursuing real interest by Turkey. We had, we have a crackhead in the White House. And then, of course, we have the specter of nuclear war looming over us at all times. Because... Some people just can't handle being wrong. But in my heart of hearts, I do believe that it won't get to that point. I don't think we're going to go out in a blaze of nuclear glory. uh, At least not now. Not yet. But, again, we'll just have to wait and see. But I do hope you've enjoyed today's uh, broadcast on my geopolitical podcast. Yeah. The world is definitely changing, definitely changing with breakneck speed, I gotta say. Who could have expected it to move so fast? But no matter what happens, no matter how fast it happens, we will have fun watching that change together. Now, I've been your host, Sean Wade, and you've been listening to This Week in Geopolitics. So until we meet again next Monday, servus. <laughs>